0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. There's also a substantial amount of concern, both within Russia and China, of what is being referred to as vaccine nationalism.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the Cyberwire's Law and Policy Podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co host, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, I have a story about police foundations buying hacking tools for local law enforcement. Ben describes a judge's reaction to the Trump administration's attempt to ban the TikTok app. And later in the show, my conversation with Aaron Brantley. He's a cybersecurity expert from Virginia Tech. We're going to be discussing cyber criminals putting the U.S. COVID-19 research efforts at risk. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash FedCyber. That's aka.ms FedCyber. All right, Ben, before we get to our stories, we had some nice follow-up here. We got a kind note from a gentleman. I'm going to leave his name out of it as we do, but he says, uh, Hello, Dave. I had a completely different reaction to hearing about the helicopter plague in Baltimore, Remember a couple uh, shows ago, Ben, you and I agreed that the helicopters in Baltimore make us anxious. Yes. (laughs) So this gentleman writes in, he says, I'm a combat vet and during my time in Afghanistan, the sound of helicopters was like a comforting blanket. When the helicopters were in the area, we knew we could relax and breathe for a moment as there wouldn't be any incoming mortars or RPGs. I chuckled to myself at the opposite reaction to the same stimuli and thought I'd share it with you. Thanks for what you're doing and keep up the good work. Well, I love this. Me too. I I love that this
2: listener wrote in and had this perspective. You know, one thing I just, people who've served in the military have a different perspective on, on everything. Um, And there's so much about what happens in military service that we could never understand in civilian life. Right, Uh, right. And, you know, it's just, I think it's important for us to get a window into that world. And so even for something small like this, for something that makes us nervous and that would would bring him comfort, it brought a smile on my face to read it. And I'm glad he wrote in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I feel the same way. So uh, thank you for writing in. Uh, That's a great perspective to share. And uh, I'm really uh, glad that you did.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for your service as well.
1: There you go. All right. Well, Ben, let's move on to our stories. Uh, Why don't you kick things off for us? What do you have for us this week?
2: So we're talking about TikTok, everybody's favorite (laughs) application for the youngins these days. My story comes from the Washington Post technology section. Judge suggests Trump administration overreached in TikTok case by Rachel Lerman. So as you might remember, the Trump administration back in early August issued an executive order seeking to ban TikTok in the United States. The authority to do that comes from a federal statute It is called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Once there has been a declared international emergency, the president can declare some sort of action, some sort of economic or political sanction on overseas entities. And as long as there are 45 days notice, then that action can take effect. So there was a declared emergency back in 2019 as it related to insecure communications from overseas adversaries like China. So this executive order was set to go into effect over the past couple of weeks. And TikTok has been granted a temporary reprieve because the judge here issued a preliminary injunction, meaning the judge is at least willing to hear the merits of TikTok's lawsuit against the federal government. And their lawsuit Hmm. contains a lot of elements. There are two that I think are worthy of focusing on. One is that there's an exception in the International Emergency Economic Powers Act that the president cannot ban personal communications. And even though that might not be the main use of the TikTok application, it certainly is a use. People are sending pictures, other personal messages. And it seems like under the clear language of the act, that would be an exception where the president would not be able to take that action. And what the judge here said is that's enough of a question that it merits further consideration in the future judicial hearing. Then there's the the First Amendment aspect of this. I mean, I think this is closely tied to the statutory issue. This is going to be a major inhibition on... First Amendment speech. This is an extremely popular application. It's a way people communicate both domestically and internationally. So putting any type of restriction on this application is going to have a profound effect on free speech rights. That might be justified if we're dealing with some sort of international menace and if the security interests are sufficient But, you know, we don't know if the remedy here of the sanction is sufficiently tailored to protect First Amendment rights. Hmm. The judge didn't touch on that in this narrow opinion that he issued this weekend. But I think, you know, now that he's issued this preliminary injunction, we're going to go further into the judicial process. I think that's going to be a key issue as well. There are other sort of tertiary factors at play here. There are due process arguments. You know, did TikTok have enough of an opportunity to challenge this case within this forty five day time frame. There are other potential statutory and, and constitutional issues, but those were certainly the two issues that caught my eye.
1: So this is the judge saying uh, not necessarily saying I agree, but saying that I think this is worth a conversation.
2: Yeah, so a preliminary injunction means that the judge has enough evidence that the moving party could potentially win on the merits. And, you know, that also, if the moving party were to lose, it would cause irreparable harm on that party, meaning there's some level of urgency to it. Mm. I think. The standards for the preliminary injunction have certainly been met here. If TikTok were to be banned in the United States and taken off of, um, you know, the Apple and Google app stores, obviously that would have a profound financial effect on them. And if we're granting the free speech argument, it would have a profound effect on free speech rights in the United States. But yes, this is not a final decision on the merits of the case. This is going to go to further proceedings. Some analysts have said that, just some analysts I've read in the past couple of days, so that they don't think this gives any indication on ultimately what will happen vis-a-vis TikTok, just because this ruling was relatively narrow. It focused on the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. So it's you know it's possible that when this is heard in this court, which is in the District of Columbia and other federal courts, Uh, When when they do reach the merits of the case, they'll come to a different conclusion. But it's sort of a judge standing on on a hill, holding up the stop sign as the Trump train, uh, so to speak, moves towards banning this application in the United States. The upshot of all all of this, I know I use the word upshot too much. It's one of my favorite (laughs) words. The result of all of this is you can still download TikTok in your app store and you can still use it. Uh, and that's because of this preliminary injunction that was released this past weekend.
1: I guess I, I'm struggling to understand, let's say they do ban TikTok. There's no shortage of other social media apps out there. So I, I guess I'm I'm having trouble understanding the First Amendment issue. These apps pop up, you know, like a game of whack-a-mole, right? And there's, in other words, there's there's no shortage of ways for people to communicate with each other online.
2: Yeah, so there are a couple of points there. First, there's a separate First Amendment issue related to code. So code is considered First Amendment protected expression. Companies run the code. So when you're forbidding a company from using the code that is produced, that is a content-based restriction of speech. Hmm. And courts look very disfavorably uh, upon that. Hmm. In terms of the suppression of speech generally, I think you're right. There are a lot of alternative applications And, you know, you could consider this more of a time, place, and manner restriction instead of a content-based restriction. In other words, they would just be banning the entire application. They wouldn't be banning a certain type of speech. Hmm. You know, the problem is, if you think about an an analog to this in the non-digital world, let's say rallies were frequently held in one widely visible town square. This is where, you know, people held major political rallies, political protests, protests. If you banned protests in that square, yes, there would be different areas uh, for you to express your political opinions, your First Amendment rights. But it would diminish your voice in a sense, just because that was the one area where people were going to be voicing their political opinions and political protests. Hmm. And so that's kind of analogous to what's happening here because it is such a popular application and people are using it for personal communications. I think judges are putting a more watchful eye on the free speech implications again that was not uh, an aspect of this particular ruling but it's certainly going to be at issue in the case largely because of the prevalence of the app we were talking about a messaging app that nobody used that consideration might be different but we're Hmm. talking about one of the most popular applications in the world and so i think that will weigh heavily in these cases
1: all right interesting story My story this week, uh, once again, from Joseph Cox over at Motherboard. Welcome back to the Joseph Cox Show. (laughs) We really do need to send him a fruit basket or something. (laughs) Ask him what he wants for Christmas this year. uh, (laughs) That's right. We'll send him an Xbox. (laughs) So the article is titled, A police charity bought an iPhone hacking tool and gave it to cops. This fascinates me here, Ben. This is something you and I have have talked about. This notion, I don't know, these sort of end-arounds. Let me describe the story here. So uh, in San Diego, there's a San Diego Police Foundation, which is a, an organization that they get donations from individuals. They get don- donations from corporations. And sometimes they get big donations from corporations. And that's to help the police with a variety of things. Now, I don't know about you, but I guess the first thing I would think of in my mind would be a police foundation would be there to help police with... Maybe expenses if a police officer got hurt on the job, or maybe if a police officer lost his or her life on the job, that maybe the foundation would be there to help support the family. Sure. uh, Get someone back on their feet, that sort of thing. And I suspect that that's probably something that this foundation does. Absolutely. But in addition to that, this story is about uh, this particular foundation. They bought the San Diego Police Department uh, a gray key, which is a device that hacks into iPhones. It unlocks iPhones. A device we've discussed here before. This is an expensive device. <laughs> not only expensive to buy, but expensive to maintain. It's about $15,000 to purchase the device, and I believe it costs the same per year to keep it up and running. Uh, you know, Which, for a professional device, is not a crazy amount of money, but it's it, we're not talking about chump change here either. What's fascinating to me is this sort of end around, because... What this does is it makes the acquisition of that device off the books. The police don't have to go and justify this in their own budget.
2: Right. And even beyond that, there's no competitive bidding process, uh, you know, no request for proposals, even from a, a cost basis you'd think that that's also kind of an end around.
1: Yeah, that's interesting as well. That's interesting as well. What is your take on this? I guess before we get to that, uh, there are some civil rights organizations that are taking issue with this. They're saying this is not an appropriate way for police departments to gather up the tools that they use. What's your take here, Ben?
2: So there are a couple of Uh, you know, I think potential big issues here. The one that's highlighted in this story and I think is extremely worthwhile to discuss is that these private foundations are funded frequently by large corporations. These seem like inconspicuous charitable donations. But when you start to see a story like this, I think that's going to put a lot of skepticism on corporations that are deciding to donate to these types of funds. Mm. I'm sure Target, for example, and they're one of the companies mentioned in this story, didn't think it would be Bad public relations to donate to a police foundation. It's they probably thought that money was going to be used for uh, one of the purposes that you mentioned. Now, you know, after this story and others like it, there's going to be skepticism on what exactly these foundations do and what specifically they're going to be paying for. And the corporations who are funding these organizations are going to have to be accountable for those decisions. It can be an effective political tactic to put pressure on companies who finance organizations like this because people do vote with their dollars. And if enough people are skeptical of a company's decision to donate to a fund like this, that can have an effect on their bottom line. People might, might decide to stop shop at a different store besides target. And they're going to be mm-hmm. concerned about that, especially as we're in a period where there is skepticism towards, you know, police power and the use of these pervasive surveillance techniques. So I think that's a, a very important aspect of it. I know I always talk about democratic accountability on the, on this podcast, It always concerns me when you find out about something like this uh, on Motherboard. We love Motherboard. It's a great resource, but it's a journalistic outfit that um, has to do a lot of sleuthing and deep reporting to uncover some of these things that we just Mm -hmm. would not have found out about, uh, particularly in an era where local news is so incredibly weak and they don't have the same investigative power that they used to. So that's another thing that stuck out at me about this story.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's worth mentioning. I mean, the story points out that, for example, uh, back in two thousand six, uh, Qualcomm, who's a maker of uh, of chips and electronics and those sorts of things, they gave the police foundation a million dollar donation, and it was used for it says here improving communications. GPS location and broadband services for the department. That seems legit to me, but, but I guess part of it is a process issue. If the police department says, boy, we could really use some equipment here to help us do our job, and the foundation is a way for them to make that happen, and it's all done out in the open and, you know, the request is made, it's a reasonable request, this is a way to have that happen, to have it happened more quickly than what happened through the regular budgeting process, I guess I can understand it. Absolutely.
2: And I, I think we've talked about on this podcast many times that you can never delegitimize the need of law enforcement, particularly as we're seeing an uptake of violent crime in cities. I mean, they want all of the tools that can possibly get their hands on to uh, increase their conviction rate to make sure they're prosecuting violent criminals. Uh, So you always have to keep that in perspective. You know, this particular tool is more invasive than most surveillance tools just because it can break uh, the encryption of an iPhone. So Mm -hmm. that's an incredibly powerful ability to have for, for a local police department. And so I think it merits oversight and skepticism, which you don't get when it's basically just a nice big Christmas gift wrapped in a beautiful bow given to the police department (laughs) by this foundation.
1: Right. Is the answer here transparency, that these sort of purchases have to be out in the open? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think the answer... Is, is almost always transparency. It's always better when people can look under the hood and see exactly what their elected officials are choosing to do and choosing to purchase and the policy decisions that their elected officials are making because then you know, people could make informed choices as to whether that's the direction they want their government to take. And I don't think you have an opportunity to make an informed choice if you only find out about this after an investigation by Vice and Motherboard. And it's something that, as you mentioned, is completely off the books. So yeah, I mean, I think it's always better to be transparent in these situations, especially you know if you're going to get to a point where you have to justify the use of this technology. It's much easier to justify it if the public's been made aware of it. There's been some level of public debate uh, if it's part of the standard procurement practices and, and mm-hmm. other government practices that take place at the local level rather than you know, having this uncovered in a news story, which I think yeah. rubs people the wrong way for good reason.
1: Yeah. And it's different when it's taxpayer money, right? I mean, it's a different type of accountability, Right, exactly.
2: I mean, when it is taxpayer money, you do have your democratic mechanisms in place. If I am a San Diego resident, and I don't like how the police department is using my money to purchase grayscale technology, then I can vote out my my local prosecutor or mayor or city council member. It's hard to do that when it's coming from a private foundation. And it's something that you wouldn't know about absent good journalism. So you know, I, I think that's really the moral of the story here
1: Yeah. All right. Well, those are our stories for this week. Uh, We would love to hear from you. We have a call in number. It's 410 618 3720. You can call and leave a message, and we may answer your question on the show. You can also email us. It's caveat at the cyberwire.com. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Aaron Brantley. Uh, He's a cybersecurity expert at Virginia Tech, and our conversation centered on the possibility that cyber criminals could be putting U.S. COVID-19 research at risk. Here's my conversation with Aaron Brantley.
0: Generally, the history of intelligence contests between the United States and formerly the, the Soviet Union has a long and, and tumultuous period of, of development ever since the U.S. and the British engaged in uh, activities to try and undermine the Bolshevik Revolution and supported the whites, Uh, Since that time, there's been little love lost and a lot of lacking of trust between the two different nations. And starting as early as soon as Lenin came into power, efforts to engage in substantial amounts of espionage against the United States, the British, and other Western powers or capitalist powers was part and parcel of the Soviet method of of engaging in international affairs. So Mm -hmm. this is nothing new. Uh, It's just being extended to new domains of, of activity.
1: So where do we find ourselves today? What's the the level of activity that that you're tracking?
0: There's still a substantial amount of espionage activity emanating from the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China that are targeting every aspect of U.S. and Western societies. They target businesses, they target governments, they target everything in between. And what we've seen right now of of particular interest to a lot of people is a targeting of biomedical firms, of technology firms or other types of firms related to the COVID-19 pandemic. And so these are modern connotations of a very old game.
1: Can you sort of lay the groundwork for us? I mean, when, when we're talking about espionage, what are we talking about and what are we not talking about?
0: Well, here what we're principally talking about is the collection of information through usually covert or clandestine means to inform or provide advantages to the government or businesses within those other countries. And so here we're talking about seeing Russian actors, uh, APT 28 and 29, going after US vaccine development projects. Uh, We've also seen various elements of Chinese uh, intelligence apparatuses going after them as well. Specifically, not necessarily trying to undermine US or British or German or other manufacturing or development, rather to gain information to try and give themselves a leg up, kind of you know cheating off of your neighbor's homework in, in class, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. trying to get a better grade or get the vaccine or get to a more equitable end faster. There's also a substantial amount of concern both within Russia and China of what is being referred to as vaccine nationalism. And this is in some ways their method of undermining or countering any potential vaccine nationalism by trying to break in and steal information. Now, in doing this, they can potentially cause cascading vulnerabilities or other types of problems that might slow or undermine US or British or European uh, vaccine efforts, but that isn't necessarily their intent.
1: So when you say vaccine nationalism, is, is that uh, where a, a particular uh, nation would have breakthroughs with vaccines but would, would keep it to themselves, wouldn't share it globally?
0: Right. It's not just about keeping it to themselves, but also perhaps prioritizing the production of vaccines within a particular domestic market, uh, not allowing for trademarked or, or copyrighted vaccine materials outside of distribution channels within their own national markets. Uh, And so this is something that's very common within drug markets as a whole. And what we see quite frequently is is espionage associated with these. But we're also seeing it here in the COVID-19 saying, hey, you know, if the U.S. develops a vaccine before us and they are only allowing, you know, drug manufacturer X to to manufacture and sell it, but they're not allowing it to become a generic market, well, then we want that drug as well. So we're going to go in and steal how it's made and how to manufacture it.
1: Can you give us some insights into what exists in terms of international norms when it comes to espionage? Because, I mean, everyone is looking at each other and as a regular part of doing business as, as a nation. Is there a, either a written or unwritten set of rules? There
0: are some unwritten rules associated with this in terms of, of how you treat uh, other nations and other individuals, particularly caught in espionage activities. Uh, typically, the common response is to charge them with a crime, uh, and if they're under diplomatic status, then you establish a persona non grata position for that individual. Uh, we we do see the melding of conventional, traditional state espionage and a lot of quasi state or criminal espionage type activities mixed together, and that kind of blurs the line between state activity and non state criminal activities. And but generally. Espionage is fairly no holds bar in terms of if if you can get in and steal it without escalating or causing a conflict, uh, then it's your general responsibility as an intelligence officer to try and get in and do it uh, as best you can. The US does adhere to certain moral and ethical guidelines that are prescribed in law. Very few other nations have high level specified controls of this kind. Some European partners do. Uh, But generally, a lot of our principal state adversaries do not have the same uh, kind of uh, constraints on their espionage behavior.
1: Hmm. Can you give us a description sort of contrasting the Russians and the Chinese? Do they come at this challenge with different techniques?
0: They do. I mean, so the the Russians have traditionally centered it in in the principal intelligence agencies, the GRU and SVU. And these two agencies work not together, they actually really don't like each other very much, but they they do work (laughs) in somewhat in tandem to try and create or exploit uh, various opportunities as they arise. The Chinese apparatus is substantially larger and much more diffuse. They have created several different military units across the, the Chinese infrastructure, uh, PLA infrastructure that engage in these types of activities. They've also been very willing to pressure and leverage Chinese nationals abroad as well as uh, students and academics and others. And this has come out in several uh, FBI reports, et cetera. That doesn't mean that they're always successful and that doesn't mean that everybody's a spy but that's been, been their modus operandi for, for quite some time.
1: You know, we, we see all these reports uh, talking about disinformation campaigns, particularly coming out of Russia, you know, as we're heading towards our election here. Is that under the umbrella of espionage or is that a, a different effort?
0: So that uh, is, is part of part and parcel actually of their espionage apparatus. And it has been so since actually since before the Soviet Union, uh, hmm. they've, engaged in what are known as active measures, a variety of different means to undermine or disrupt populations abroad. It is a mechanism by which they try and achieve political outcomes short of engaging in any type of warfare or other type of activity. In conventional Russian and Soviet military thought, this is essentially a politics by other means or engaging in some sort of of struggle against outside forces. Uh, and This is ongoing. It's the current reports out of the ODNI and the rest of the intelligence community indicate that active measures by the, the Russian Federation are still ongoing, although likely not as substantial as they were in 2016 in terms of their impact, but they definitely are ongoing.
1: How much has the shift to everything being online, to to this interconnection that we have now, you know, that we did not have decades ago, has that leveled the playing field when it comes to espionage? Has that made it easier for some nations? The, I, I would uh, suspect that the the level of investment that they'd have to make has probably gone down. Is, is that an accurate assessment?
0: So in some ways,
1: there is a
0: level of, of return on investment in terms of they, they save money in terms of not having to put human assets in the field necessarily as much although actually in reality what we are seeing is we're seeing almost the same number of human assets plus in addition to that cyber uh, exploits and other types of things going on concurrently early in the 1990s and in the early 2000s as the internet and cyberspace was expanding it was referred to somewhat as the golden age of of intelligence uh, that's been pushed back a little bit with the advent of uh, with the the proliferation of encryption and the New rules written under the Clinton administration that allowed the proliferation of encryption to general markets. But generally speaking, cyberspace has facilitated, uh, and, and the internet more as a broad concept and connectivity has facilitated, uh, espionage and crime in a way that likely would have been unfathomable in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. The amount of information that is stolen is substantially higher. I'll give you, give you one brief, like anecdotal example of this, and that hmm. is that the the under the Farewell Dossier, a, a, a French DSNT spy in the Soviet Union was able to indicate uh, and provide evidence that the Soviet Union had, had stolen. He, he personally had stolen about a file cabinets worth of data. When the Chinese broke in and stole information on the F twenty two, they stole documents the equivalent of filling dump trucks all the way from the Pentagon to Baltimore Harbor. And <laughs> so that's, there's the, quali- the, the volume of information, the level of information is just substantially higher. And the quality of information is also higher, whereas you might have had to have exploited one individual human source or might have tried to steal specific documents or undermine one particular news story or something like that. Now we have the ability to break in and take entire troves of information Uh, or entire volumes of content simultaneously uh, that might have been distributed in multiple different file cabinets or other places prior to the internet.
1: You you mentioned encryption. What's been the development of countermeasures? Has has there been an increase in sophistication there as well?
0: The countermeasures to intelligence are growing in terms of encryption is one of the best ways to prevent data at rest in particular uh, from being stolen or being used uh, or manipulated. When data at at rest is not encrypted and it is taken, then that obviously leaves it open for prying eyes. But when it is encrypted, it it allows it to at least have a measure of security. It doesn't mean it's not going to be stolen, it just means that it's going to be harder for somebody to to break into it and read it or use it. Other countermeasures uh, are simple things such as uh, the Department of Defense now allows uh, every single user within the department to see when an email is originating outside of the department Uh, And it gives a little banner and it deactivates all of the links associated with that email. And those types of small behavioral changes within an organization really have profound effects, particularly when you consider IBM reports coming out uh, within the last decade that suggest that upwards of 90% of all major cyber incidents occur with human users clicking on links or some sort of insider threat activity Hmm. by shifting the psychology of individuals uh, away from these types of behaviors of clicking on links reflexively, we are not only elevating the security, but preventing attacks such as phishing attacks or other types of things as well.
1: Do you have any speculation of where things are headed in terms of the, the trends that you're tracking? Are, are we, any suspicions of, of what the futures holds?
0: I think there's several different ways uh, that this is all going to shake out. One, I think that general cybersecurity mechanisms are going to become much more robust. Uh, We've seen through the DARPA Grand Challenge and others uh, that uh, products are coming out with AI embedded in them that are able to identify and patch systems on the fly. And these are going to become very helpful. I think we're also going to see behavioral changes in organizations where they limit uh, link clicking uh, through notifications of outside emails and other types of behavioral changes. We're also going to see uh, increased prosecution of cases as well, but I think that the the real challenge is not necessarily national governments or businesses at the larger scale, but rather individuals, human rights activists, and others who simply are unable to compete or participate in these large cybersecurity endeavors, and they are going to continuously be the victims both of states, espionage, and other types of activities. I think that. What's really important to know is that moving forward as we all move to our remote and online lives, the number of estimated cyber attacks against individuals is increasing. Every major corporation that engages in cybersecurity assessments has has noted this fact. And engaging in robust digital hygiene moving forward is a basic minimum step that we can do to combat these efforts. All right, Ben, what do you think?
2: First, I love the history of espionage in the United States. (laughs) Not often we get a a history lesson going back to the Russian Revolution. Uh, And it's certainly history that I wasn't particularly familiar with. I also thought that, not that he was pushing back, but he kind of questioned your premise that this is a cheaper type of warfare, so to speak, that it doesn't require the amount of resources as conventional warfare. And what he seemed to say is that it actually is very resource-intensive, And, you know, some of our adversaries have to devote a lot of manpower and money to engage in these espionage tactics. And, you know, that means that they're going to have to get a payoff, whatever that is. So, you know, when we talk about election interference, it's sowing chaos in our democracy, which they, you know, the Russians think that they can use to their geopolitical advantage, You know, when we're talking about COVID cures, you get into some very difficult moral and and ethical issues. Obviously, we want people to have protected intellectual property rights in their whatever COVID cures, therapeutics, or vaccines that they're developing. But from a foreign adversary's perspective, everybody's trying to solve the same problem here. So I am almost not more sympathetic, but I can at least understand those types of espionage efforts more than some of the others that he talked about historically. I still right. think it's, it's morally wrong and a violation of international law, but I just thought that was an interesting aspect
1: of it. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, our thanks to uh, Aaron Brantley from Virginia Tech for joining us. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and zero trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E